Dotnet Rocks episode 819 with guest Oren Eni. Recorded live Saturday, October 27th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Washington, D.C., welcome to .NET Rock! Your tax dollars at work, America. <laughs> so happy to be here on the road trip, and uh, we're Oranini is here. Come on! And a, and a hurricane is bearing down on us. Oh my God! <laughs> yes, it is. So, we were originally supposed to park the RV here in DC for the week, right? And then fly home to see our loved ones. And Richard still gets to fly home, Well, because I'm going west. It's provided I get out tomorrow. And, of course, by the time this show is heard by anybody, this will all have happened. The hurricane will be long over. Right. And who knows if it's going to be the snowpocalypse or yeah, the, the snoreaster or the Frankenstorm. <laughs> who knows if it's just going to be a little drip of rain. Like, well, nobody knows for sure. We know it's going to be a pretty significant storm. It's but. moving at 13 miles an hour right now. It's 75-mile-an-hour winds, and it's heading your way. Nice. So, and I called my mother and I said, that storm's coming for your house. Oh my God. You like draw a line. It's making a beeline for her house. So anyway, I wasn't able to go home. Uh, I could probably leave tomorrow to go home, but I would not be able to make it yeah, back. I don't know when you get back. And, and yeah. one week from when we're recording this, we're on the Saturday. Next Saturday is the Tallahassee Code Camp and we want to be right. there. And the RV's down there. Yeah. So. so the RV's safe and sound. We're making all our stops and doing all our shows. And by the way, hope everybody who is affected by the hurricane is safe and uh, well. And, and we, well, we get back to you know now we want the humanitarian toolbox to be done. Absolutely, yeah. We want people to uh, send us their stories of how they had no electricity, but they went out to their Prius and uh, listened to some .NET Rocks episodes. <laughs> Because that's, I'm sure, going to happen. All right. Well, let's get started with a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, uh, because Windows 8 launched yesterday, was it yesterday or today? Longer ago than that, considering when this show is going to be published, you know, the whole time. Okay, but as of this recording, yeah, I think it was, it was like, yesterday, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yesterday. Yeah. So, um, Maybe the day before. Okay, well, whatever. Before. So it was recently launched, and... Microsoft's making a compelling case to allow you to upgrade Windows 7 for 40 bucks. Nice. Right? Yeah. So uh, we expect a lot of people will uh, be upgrading to Windows 8. Now, desktop users who won't be writing Windows Store applications still should upgrade to Windows 8, mm -hmm. I think. Although a lot of them grumble about, you know, uh, the start menu. Yeah. And so I'm here to tell you, I told you people, right, that uh, the, the Windows 8 on the desktop is really a keyboard-friendly operating system, and you really need to get used to using the Windows key. I used to always make fun of the Windows key. 
Yeah. You know, I didn't even want it on my keyboard, but now... Well, I always use Windows E for the Explorer. Right. Like, I use that because that's a nice shortcut. But Windows 8 takes the Windows key very seriously. Right. So if you just... Uh, you're in desktop mode and you type the Windows key and type CMD, enter, and a command window will pop up. Mm -hmm. So when you press Windows key and start typing, you're essentially selecting an application. Right. Um, Windows C pulls up the charms. Mm -hmm. Windows I pulls up the settings, including the power power down and all that. And here's the tip for developers today. Oh. Windows X. Ooh. Windows key X pulls up a power menu and it gives you all sorts of administrative options, including a command prompt with admin access and uh, computer management and disk management and the control panel. But it's panel. also a menu. You, it's a menu. Yeah. It's a pop-up so menu. Touch it or use a mouse on it. Yep. Exactly. And I also found... Um, a website, if you go to tinyurl.com slash win8tricks, 30 cool Windows 8 tricks you must know. And uh, I'm not going to go through. A lot of them I already knew, but there were some of them, like creating shortcuts to uh, on the on the uh, desktop for shutdown and hibernate oh, and really? all that stuff. There's text that you can just create a shortcut, and there's text you can paste in to create those. So cool. it's kind of cool. There's a, And it's also there's... If you really don't like the start menu, you want a in a you want a Windows Seven style start menu. Yep. There are actually third party tools that you can install in Windows Eight and right. give you the old start menu back. So you can make it the way you want it. You can make it the way you want it. All right, I love it. Simply put, Windows Eight is the the best version of Windows out there, mm -hmm. and I I love it. You've so, been using it every day on the road trip. Yeah, I have. Know it, learn and love it. Know it, learn and love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment in honor of our guest, of course, from show 650, which is the show that we did with Iende on doing Raven transactions DB. in RavenDB way back when. And so this comment is old because 650 is 150 shows ago. Yeah. Uh, but Andrew Trevers wrote, when I've talked to people in the past about NoSQL databases like RavenDB and MongoDB, the question I usually have is, what would be some of the differentiating factors that would lead me to choose RavenDB, MongoDB, or whatever over a relational database? Hmm. Most often, the response I get back has been something to do with being able to scale out and performance. However, do document databases like RavenDB also have a place in smaller business applications? What are your thoughts on this? To me, the simplicity of a database like RavenDB would lend itself nicely to usage in a prototype scenario or even an application where you have a fairly small schema. I often find that in these cases, the usage of an RDBMS is more of a reflex than a well-considered choice. Mm. Do you have any opinions on this? Let's ask I don't, Oren. I don't think Oren has any opinions on this whatsoever. don't think he has whatsoever. any opinions at all. There's nothing to say. No unbiased one, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, admittedly, you're, you're biased. But I've got to think, it's the programming simplicity. Like, eliminating an ORM from your life doesn't seem like a bad thing. No. Um, so, just before we started the show, I uh, had a short talk about the sort of pain points that you keep running into, mostly because this is what we've always been, uh, we always done. Mm -hmm. And... But like the comment said, using RDMS for most people is... Reflex. Reflex. This is what you do because you're always done that and you know how to... You know how to get started. Yeah. You know how you know how to do it. It's this. also the devil you know. Mm -hmm. mm. And the problem here is that it really, really is a devil. Because <laughs> think about it. When So something that I keep reminding people is relational databases were designed uh, about... 30 or 40 years ago yep. now. And think about the, the, the era it, it was. So just for example, in 
1979, a 500-megabyte disk mm-hmm. would cost about $700,000 yes. in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. So think about the implication of that for application system design. It was crucially important that you could actually save as much disk space as possible because who cares about the licensing cost? The disk, the, just the disk that you put the data on was far more expensive than anything else. And we haven't even touched on the cost of the actual system. Mm-hmm. So that's why yeah, the provisioning of uh, space per, per then you, then you start, char and all this so stuff. Every time that, so every DBA that I've known have been very well aware about this space, size of the row, right. what so if I add an index, how much space it's going to mm-hmm. add. And we still architect like we have those constraints. Mm-hmm. And then you start talking about things like normalizations. Mm-hmm. And everyone wants, oh, I want to have third normal form, I want to have fifth normal form, ninth normal form, and those sort of yeah. things. <laughs> and as it turns out, most of the time, not only don't you don't you want normal form, this is actually going to cause very serious bugs in your applications. Bugs and performance issues, yeah. Uh, there is a performance issue, but uh, we're going to touch this later. Mm. But let's talk about the simplest thing that uh, we could talk about. Let's talk about an order. I think you got them going. Oh, it's yeah. better go. frame. Should we save some of this for the show? Yeah, let me get Andrew out of here, get him his mug, and we'll go straight into this, Orin. I love it when you're engaged like that. Hey, Andrew, look what you did. I blame you. Thanks so much for your comment. I'm sorry you, you made it so long ago and we didn't get back to you right away, but I got Orin back on the show. We've got a great answer, and I think we're going to build a whole show around your question. Mm. So the least I can do is send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses, and they put out eight to 10 new courses every month. Um, these courses are authored by MVPs and industry experts, such as the people you hear on this show. Uh, topics include everything from the uh, Windows stack, plus Java, Android, iOS, uh, HTML, uh, SQL, you name it, it's up there. It's our RavenDB. And RavenDB, nice. as our guest points out. So go to Pluralsight.com today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, a formal round of applause for Mr. Oranini. I like you in D.C., Oran. I'm going to tell you. So let's get back. I'm going to jump right back into Andrew's uh, question here. And you're saying the essence of this is building more reliable code. The basic is that, I'm not sure that I would agree with that, Mm -hmm. but let's talk about something simple like an order. Mm -hmm. And an order has an address. Now, usually when you talk about relational system, we have an addresses table, and the order has an address ID column, and those sort of things. Yeah, it would be a customer ID, and inside mm-hmm. that customer table, I mean, it even gets to the point where the customer has a billing address and a shipping address, and so we have an address abstracted mm-hmm. table. And now we get to an interesting point. First of all, now if I just want to show the order, I need to touch 8, 10, 20, 20 tables. Right. Easy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about the very complicated systems. Mm-hmm. And that is, coming back again to the this size, that is because it was cheaper to make the user wait right. than because when we reconstruct the information, because the whole idea of relational databases is to make write cheap at the expense of reads. And if you think about this today, 
how many of you actually build application where writes are more occurring more often than the reads? Usually we talk about thousand, ten thousand reads per every write. Mm-hmm. And so there is that problem of relational database favoring writes over reads. Mm-hmm. And then we have another issue, and that is data accuracy. So the moment that we start talking about uh, phone keys and references, then we start asking ourselves, wait a second, what happened when I want to change my address? Mm-hmm. So I'm, my order already shipped. No one is going to go to FedEx and tell them, oh, wait, wait, wait. that order that is currently halfway uh, around the world, turn it around. It's supposed to go this way. Right. But physically speaking, if I go and do the simplest thing that could possibly work and I just update that address table. Right. Now you make the history I have, change. I have mm-hmm. corrupted the mm-hmm. data. Right. Yeah, I agree. And we actually see that in many cases, invoices, orders. Think about something that actually have a legal meaning, like a paycheck. If you go and change your name or change your address, you cannot change the data that was written to the paycheck. But the relational model naturally lends itself to that. Because you only stored that person's address mm-hmm. in one place, you change that one place, you just change history. Yes. And now you start talking about temporal data. Mm-hmm. And this is where everything goes the rabbit hole and you have to have 60s join just to be able to load a single user. Yeah. Right. And so now we start having to think more deeply about the data and about the relations between different pieces of the, of the data. We have something called point-in-time reference. Mm-hmm. The address for the order, the, the name on your paycheck, those sort of things. Those are all point-in-time references. And mm-hmm. the moment that that check was issued, this is what the truth was. Exactly. Right. And then we have current references. For example, uh, where you're working at. So if I change my company name, mm-hmm. I haven't mm-hmm. changed where I'm working at. Right. I changed the company name. Right. And you see these errors creep up in the usability of these systems all the time as a consumer. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're dealing with your bank, when you're dealing oh, with God. your insurance company, and especially health insurance, like the, you know, uh, you know, no, I'm sorry. When something changes, they just completely freak out about it. Because, uh, yeah, that's why they prefer to, you're always reverting to old addresses and things. <laughs> it's, no, actually, think about something more interesting. Uh, think about what happened when you change data that suddenly goes back in time. Mm-hmm. And for example, trivial example, uh, let's say that uh, I'm going to report to my health insurance that I broke my leg. Mm-hmm. And they they don't actually have a proper temporal model. Mm-hmm then suddenly, oh, wait, we're going to look at your current status as it was two years ago. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you broke your leg already. And right. pre-existing conditions, all the all sorts of stuff. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm intentionally yeah. giving a fake example because I assume they solved that. Or if not, someone sued them for that. Yeah. But uh, that is actually a very important thing. And I have actually seen system where those sort of uh, issue cause real problems. So how does a how does a NoSQL database make it easier for you to make this temporal model that you're talking about? Okay, so think about the notion of a document in general. Mm-hmm. So think about, for example, the order document. And in RavenDB, for example, what you will have is actual document that has a one-to-one mapping 
to that other document that you see on the screen. Mm -hmm. So you have that address field over there. That address is actually going to be embedded inside that document. Mm -hmm. So you're not actually holding a reference to an external entity. Mm. You're actually holding it's a embedded container. copy. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's a container. The truth at the time. Yes, and that makes those sort of things much easier. Now, we still want to fetch. You don't want to make the guy enter the address every time, right? You go no. pull the last address mm -hmm. from the last order? Uh, that's one option. Or mm -hmm. maybe you have just a set of orders for this user. Right. So let's talk about the notion of a customer. Mm -hmm. And as a customer, I have the my email, my password, my preferences, my addresses. And in RavenDB, all of those would be a single document mm -hmm. for that particular customer. Now, when I'm actually when I'm actually uh, want to show, okay, what address do you want to ship? I don't need to go and search in previous orders or any sort of things mm. because I have that data embedded inside the customer itself. Mm. I already loaded that once when I loaded that user. Right. I don't have to pay any extra Optimize cost. Optimize for reads. Exactly. Yeah. So when I add a new address, I'm adding that address both to the customer document and to the old orders. For that matter, I also allow, I also allow the user the ability to delete addresses mm -hmm. and I don't have to be afraid for because of funky references or any sort of things like that mm. because now I actually deleting an instance of that order mm -hmm. an instance of that address and I'm not going to impact any existing orders sure. because they have a copy of that right got it so yeah it's funny that this because this space is so cheap the idea of having multiple, you know, duplicate data is not such a horrible thing. Yes, and the problem here is that you're absolutely correct that duplicate data is now cheap enough that it doesn't actually matter. Right, and it gives you a heck of an advantage. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the reason that I'm saying that duplicate data doesn't matter is that while it physically is the same, logically it's not the same thing. Right. The fact yeah. that they have the same others in two different places does not mean it's the same address as far as a business logic is concerned. No, sure. It's, they're two different points of truth mm -hmm. and yeah. they could have been different and they should be stored separately. Exactly. Right. Now, try to, try to think how you do it in a relational database and you get lost. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com slash Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Richard and I actually had a conversation earlier today about performance. So some of the things we've been doing with, uh, Raven, with RavenDB uh, for the next version, which is hopefully will be out in November, mm -hmm. uh, is work very hard on performance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have done is run a series of load tests on the NuGet uh, dataset. Mm -hmm. So I basically put all of the NuGet uh, packages from the server and build my own NuGet server and then run a load test on that. Mm -hmm. uh, we started with 300 users on, a st on my standard laptop, which is uh, quad core and eight gigabytes of RAM. Mm -hmm. okay. And we try to see how, how many, how good we can uh, we can get it to be. Mm -hmm. No optimization, nothing whatsoever. 
uh, at 300 users, we're able to serve requests at something like 800 requests per second mm-hmm. at 0.0021 average uh, response time. Effectively, instantly. Wow. Yes. So if you look at the graph, basically the graph is absolutely flat. Wow. So the next thing after that yeah, was... The first time you ran that, you thought, this didn't work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then I ran it a couple more times and, okay, it appears to be working. Yeah, That's it's fine. it's just that mm. fast. Uh, so obviously I said, okay, we, we did 300 users. Let's see, what, let's see when we break it. And I try with 3,000 users. Right. And with 3,000 users, we didn't do as well. We only were able to handle 700 requests per second, 741 requests per second, at an average speed of 0.37 seconds per request. Right, so about a third of a second each. Mm-hmm. Yes. On the other hand, we had 700 per uh, second for all of them. Right. And it worked. Uh, now, any other system that I've tried to do something like that Generally, goes boom, yeah, yeah, and it just dies and crashes. Well, you because get that normal sort of pattern of failure where it it gets goes fast as the load goes up, it goes faster, 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 and then it sort of slopes down a little bit, and then it just fails. <laughs> so this it drops the, off the cliff. This is the question I asked you on that um, on that last show, and uh, it's still a valid question on people's mind, I think, um, which is: let's say you're doing a complex query that has a mm-hmm. big where clause, right? So you have a set of you know thousands of of records and just current records, thousands of current records for orders, let's say, and a whole string of, of criteria. What actually has to happen there and how fast is it, does it work? Um, I'm going to ignore the thousands of records. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my database, I have a test database of 4.6 million records. Millions Basically, records. the entire IMDB uh, data set. Mm-hmm. Okay. And running queries on that full text queries give me all of the movies that Batman uh, that uh, has Batman in them for example yep. uh, takes about one millisecond okay so what are you doing to make it so fast I cheat sorry I cheat you cheat <laughs> so that's something that is actually quite important yeah uh, everywhere in Raven no I actually can't explain that without explaining something even more important mm-hmm. okay um, relational database make a set of promises about how they're going to work. They're going to be consistent, mm-hmm. they're going to be isolated, durable, mm. and atomic. The acid properties. Yes. And as it turns out, without acid, it becomes extremely hard to work and to reason about how you work with that. Yes. We actually talk about it in the previous in the previous show, we talk about transactions in RavenDB. Right. And the ma- major part of RavenDB is actually acid, the document store. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to queries, we are actually promise you something quite different. We'll promise you that we give you the result that we have as of this minute. Right. We will tell you absolutely if this is information is absolutely correct or potentially still. Right. But we'll give you the the information immediately because we don't. So not have, minute, but moment. I mean, minute in transactional velocity is a long time. No, I'm talking about uh, the moment. You, yeah, the average time that we're talking about is. The latencies tend to be in the tens of milliseconds. Okay. So if I remember correctly, you your writes are delayed and Oh no. Well, your writes goes through. But they go through a queue, right? Yes or no. So Yeah, okay, yeah. I, so the write goes through, mm-hmm. but you're building indexes. Yes. On, exactly. The, yeah, you're building indexes in the background, which may or may not re- Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And the key point here is that because I actually been in the index on the background, mm-hmm. 
I don't have to wait for rights. I don't right. have to wait for reads. Right. Uh, taking that one step further, it means that the promise, the set of promises that I give you is much more relaxed. Yeah. It means that I can uh, start playing with the latency that I have. Yep. Let's say that, for example, in the 3,000 users that suddenly hammer my database, mm. what happened is that Remini noticed that it's under load mm. and automatically said, okay, I'm now going, because I'm under such high load, I'm going to put indexing at lower priority mode mm -hmm. right. and move a lot more effort actually into a, a, a server request. Right. Mm. That means that I'm still able to give you answer for everything. Sure. It just means that the latency of the accuracy of the answer is go might uh, grow. Right. Now, when you start talking about the latency of the answer is going to grow, that sounds scary. But then you realize mm. that this is what everyone is doing. Ninety percent of the cases don't require up to the second exactly. right. accuracy. You're you're caching anyway. Exactly. You know, and it's funny you describe it that way. I right. have built systems in SQL Server where we have a monster data load at three in the morning, and we toss a bunch of indexes out to speed up the updates because normally updates are synchronous to the indexes, yes. and then rebuild the indexes afterwards. Yeah. And cripple querying performance during the load right. to speed up the load time. Um, actually, you had to do that on the Enterprise Edition. Otherwise, after you do the, the ETL process, then creating the index would basically lock the entire table entirely. Yeah. yeah. So um, that, that's actually quite important uh, feature because it means that you have to pay that many more hundreds of, uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands well, of dollars. Yeah, in, in 2008, it was 25 grand a processor. In mm -hmm. 2012, it's eight grand a core. Yeah, and I'm not going to even try to decide what the core is. Well, I'm now sure. the actual. So if you have a, it used to be probably the socket, mm -hmm. right? So it's 25 grand a socket. So if you had 16 cores in that socket, you only still pay 25 grand. Okay. Now, if you've got 16 cores in that socket, you're paying if you have eight yeah, cores, 104 thousand dollars. Yeah. And so what is the average number of cores per four to eight, between four and eight? Depends <laughs> yeah, on what eight. it is. No, no. On a production SQL? Uh, well, no, no, per, per socket. Per socket. Uh, so typically, you'll have four uh, sockets, mm -hmm. four to eight cores each. You know, 64 yeah. cores, not okay. unreasonable. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds easy. of thousands for the license. So, um, we try to be all of that. By the way, also, also introducing a new index to the system goes through the same process. So, this is actually live, uh, live index rebuild. Mm -hmm. uh, no, wait, 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 wait. One more time. A new index. Okay, let's say again. We are. We have this 4.6 million uh, uh, documents database. Right, right. We introduce a new index to the system. Okay. It's going to take right now. It's going to take about five to ten minutes to index the entire. Oh, team. oh, oh. Okay. 4.6 million rows. Yes. Okay. And what are you indexing exactly? Uh, depending on the index. So right. because the user the, the user gets to yes or the DBA gets to set up the index mm -hmm. and it's any given field essentially any property the things a, that you're going to search of fields, on uh, whatever this is full text index numeric index those sort of things and do okay. you have the kinds of you know weird problem I mean you know if Kimberly Tripp were here she'd be give you a whole dissertation on when to index and why what and when uh, and why most of the time you will um, so most of the time when you hear DBAs talk about this it's because they have to face the limitation of oh, SQL, SQL of offline index rebuilds. Right. Mm -hmm. When you index 
something that's going to cause slowdown in reads, uh, slowdown in writes, mm -hmm. it means that if you want to add a new index, that usually in offline operation. Mm -hmm. By the way, even in enterprise editions, if you want to do a index rebuild, that's costly. Mm -hmm. yeah. That means that you probably don't want to do it while your site is active. So here's another question. What do, what do the queries look like? I mean, you obviously can't really use T-SQL because there's, you don't have the relations and the joins and stuff, but... So you use Link? Yes. Yeah. Uh, there is actually a query language underneath, mm -hmm. which is basically property value or property range, and right. those sorts of things. This is So if you've done Link to objects, where you have objects that are relating to each other somehow, um, you know how to use Yes, pretty Raven. much. Uh, there is one caveat. In RavenDB, we don't allow references between objects. Right. So if you have a reference between the object, then this is the same embedded, this is going to be an embedded value inside the master document. Right. If you want to have a reference to another document, you hold that document ID. Oh. And we have support for doing things, uh, this call includes, so let's say that I want to load an order, and the order has a property called a customer ID. Mm. And I can instruct RavenDB, while you're loading this order, also load me, the customer, the customer. So that people, you're open the door. You're opening the door to a relational database. It's not relational. That's that's the important point because we aren't doing a join. For example, we don't have any sort of problems with things like a Cartesian products, because um, with what product? Cartesian product. Cartesian product, maybe. Cartesian. Yeah, multiplying all the rows against all the other rows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, trivial example would be let's say that they have users and groups. Mm -hmm. And when I'm loading the users, I also want to load all of its groups. Okay. So that means that uh, I'm going to get n results depending on how many groups I have. Yep. In RavenDB, we'll just get the results as they are. You won't have data duplication in the query. Okay. Uh, you can also do that in just one query to the database and save a lot on that. Because um, coming back to the performance issue, a lot of, when I said that I cheated, I actually meant, uh, I meant that as a design principle, we try to make sure that the costly things do not happen on the main thread. Right. So you're never going to, so you talk about expensive queries. Mm -hmm. Redmi doesn't have expensive queries. We don't, we don't allow them because right. there are no such thing as a computation during query. Got it. So all you're doing is actually doing an index lookup and think about so think about in yeah, from the point I, of view of the, of the database, you're only doing worst worst case scenario you're doing an index scan instead of index seek. Right. And you don't have joins, you don't have a computation, that's it. Excellent. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. It must be that happy time it's again. It's that happy time to give away a uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you're all members, right? Yeah. Awesome. Today's winner is Emile LeBlanc from Paris, France. Wow. For a man applause. And if and uh, the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection is everything that they do in one package, including Kendo UI and I believe their Windows 8 controls. Absolutely. And their Windows 8 controls, by the way, are 99 bucks right now. So uh, they were free like a couple of weeks ago. They're going to increase by $100 every month until they're $7.99. Mm -hmm. So now's a good time to get them. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, the, the .NET Rocks fan club is free to join. Just go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and every December we're going to give away 
$5,000 worth of technology to one lucky winner. And we've spent a lot of the road trip arguing over what that we stuff have. should be. We, you know, the current thing that raises eyebrows is a is a, uh, a 3D printer. Mm-hmm. And a Surface Pro, of And course. a Surface Pro. And maybe some and, other. And, you know, with the rest of the money, we could probably put in the plastic for the 3D printer yeah. that it uses as Maybe a little drawing tablet, good CAD program, like, like all the bits you need to make. So, Oren, if somebody said, here's $5,000, but you have to spend it on technology, what would you get today? Everything. <laughs> for five grand what, what would you get um, hold that mic up there yeah, yeah I'm trying I'm trying to think and I hmm, I don't know you know honestly I don't know I would, put that's you on the spot. I would have to yeah. think alright you don't want a 3D printer um, I do but that's the sort of thing that's okay once you're too I've busy pr- working to mess with a 3D yeah. printer right <laughs> once I've printed a false couple of things that's it you're done yeah, yeah. I actually got a Raspberry Pi. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's so, very tough to spend $5,000 on Raspberry Pies. That's a big <laughs> pile of Raspberry Pies. <laughs> <laughs> They're cheap. One yeah. in every room. Yeah, so that's, They're amazing. That, that's my toy. Yeah, right they're now. great. All right. So we were talking about query syntax and what that looks like, and, and Link is the answer. Um, well, my question was, you know, in a, in a service-oriented architecture, where does RavenDB fit? Um, you behind a behind a service, or can you expose it directly? You can expose HTTP? it directly. It's an HTTP service. You can expose it. It has a JavaScript and Civilat API, so it's very easy to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, then again, the moment that you expose that to external clients, you have the same problem that you always have when you expose things to external clients. Sure. Sometimes this is acceptable if this is an internal application. If uh, you don't worry, if you don't worry about the sort of data that you have there, mm-hmm. that's very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, many cases, when you actually do care about data security and integrity, then obviously you put the services in front of that. What is the security model for? Do you just use standard Windows security? Um, you can use Windows Out, including okay. defining this database has this users allowed. No, uh, there, this one is read only. This one is admin. Those sorts mm. of things. You can also define a. We call them API keys. They're very similar to SQL users. Sure. We just don't want to call them users. Yeah. Right. Uh, Only drug dealers call their customers users. Yeah. <laughs> the actual problem that we have is that when you start calling them users, then you start having social problems around that. Yeah. Right. You're right. When, sure. Uh, when you start to call, to call, okay, this is the uh, accounting app API key. That's much easier to and to it just about. it indicate it uh, implies that it's under a developer's control and the developer should keep it in the app um, only. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes uh, we we generally run so our only tell stuff run using Windows Note, mm-hmm. uh, and this is basically just because the services that we run run under, under the service account that has access to RavenDB. That's all. So, what is the Windows eight? Windows Store app story for RavenDB because so, I can see a lot of things. Uh, you know, RavenDB makes makes a nice client side database. Yes, it is. Yeah. So it won't be in the next version that is coming in November, but we already have people working on that story, and we have a friend that is going to be at Build that's going to actually sit with the team and see that make sure that we have all of the building blocks that we need to actually gather. Initial Spike says that most of that is already there, mm-hmm. but and I don't expect that to be a major problem. Probably to be on the next version of RavenDB. Because you're basically just using standard I.O., aren't you? I mean, you're... Um, 
we could some of it yes um and threads and it become complex because now we start talking about transactions right and transactions are freakishly complex <laughs> we talked about that it looks yeah. so simple right um yeah it's actually very simple when you start thinking about it it's very simple making it concurrent and fast yeah is the hard problem yeah yeah uh so we actually use ecent for a lot of our uh our uh, data access mm-hmm. for our transaction store we have a fully managed uh, system as well but for production we prefer to use ecent mostly because ecent Ecent is the underlying data store for Exchange, Active Directory, uh, Windows Live Writer, those sorts of things. Uh, that's why I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. So it's basically very well uh, used and known technology. Yeah. Uh, it means that we get a lot of stuff for free. Mm. For example, uh, if you had a hardware failure and we need to recover the database, mm-hmm. then the tooling to do so are actually shipped with Windows. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So isn't util and uh, those sorts of things. Mm. So I can just tell people, okay, go to the directory, issue this isn't util slash d or slash p, and you're done. It's basically reco- re- recovered on the fly, and we don't have to do anything uh, to get that. That just makes it all the more compelling to deploy on client machines. I agree. It's I good, agree. It's good thinking. Now, the way you're describing this makes me think, wow, we, why would we ever use SQL Server ever, ever, ever again? Yeah. Ah, okay, so RavenDB is meant for OLTP applications. Okay. And meant for what? OLTP. OLTP applications. OLTP application. Online transaction processing. Yep. And it's doing great where that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It can also do great when you're talking about static reporting. Right. And what do I mean by static reporting? I'm talking about I know what I'm going to report about. I right. know what my uh, uh, parameters are going to be. And I can build my expressions up. I can put indexes to keep the performance high. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. The problem becomes when you want to do things dynamically. Mm-hmm. For example, I want to show, um, let's say, in our uh, IMDB database, I want to have, a, let's show all, the, all of the movies grouped by uh, actor name and country mm-hmm. and see all of the actors that... Uh, uh, from France. Mm-hmm. So if you to, if you told me that you wanted to do so in advance, it's very easy for RavenDB to generate that index and give you the answer very quickly. Right. But if you just want to explore the data, if you want to do a lot of dynamic queries, uh, that becomes much harder to do. Mm-hmm. So OLAPy stuff is yes. not going to yes. be so good. Yeah. We actually have... Um, we actually have... Uh, at some point extension that actually does that, that give me an expression, I will run it, and you go ahead and decide how to to make it work. The problem is that this requires us to do an ON operation, and that's not something that you want to do for any sort of production systems. How many indexes can you support before... I mean, and I know this is an arbitrary question, but I guess that number of indexes is sort of a magic number, isn't it? Um it does impact. It does have an impact on the size of CPU, the number of memory. The right. uh, actually, the most important thing is probably the I/O cost. Yep. We are working on reducing that, and we actually managed to improve the indexing performance by four to six hundred percent in the last two weeks. And only support SSDs. That's how you can do. No, it. no, no, <laughs> no. Actually, a lot of the a lot of the patterns for optimizing I/O. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hasn't changed in the last 20 years yeah. because at, at the ba- at most basic level, 
I/O is super slow, yeah, and CPU is much much faster. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small, especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report Six. Oh yeah. Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Fundamentally, the you know we're trapped in the Intel Northbridge Southbridge <laughs> architecture. The reason I/O hasn't changed is that I/O hasn't changed. You know, it's still the same. And if you go to, but if you go to ARM, if you go to any other architecture, mm -hmm. you still have the same problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, economic dictate that you're going to have several uh, layers of storage with different speeds. Mm -hmm. So. You have registers, you have L1, L2, RAM, then you have the uh, disk, network, those sort of things. And you have to deal with that because high-speed memory costs a lot, a lot, a lot, a right. lot. So, um, for example, the reason that we now do, uh, the reason that we uh, got such a high performance benefit uh, in indexing is that now we are actually able to parallelize the indexing process with loading the data from disk. Hmm. And on what we're working now, Rachel actually, um, sorry, Richard just came uh, to uh, pick me up and he scared the crap out of me because <laughs> I was I was there busy optimizing it even further hmm. because we want to get it to be uh, about a thousand percent faster than the previous version that we had. But you mean the main thing you've done, the normal punishment, as a SQL guy, is if I add an index, I slow down write performance, and you've pretty much eliminated that. Basically. Yes. Yeah. And you're and the main then the, if if you're not impacting write performance uh, and you're improving read performance, mm -hmm. the main thing cost then is just the read space. Well, and also the processor to rebuild those indexes That's free. on the fly. That's right? effectively free. Uh, if you think about that, uh, CPU in just about. Any, anything but scientific application is effectively free because you're going to be bound mostly by I.O. Right. So it's you're really I.O. bound. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's why I said that now we're able to parallelize the indexing process and fetching the next yeah. thing that we need to index, mm -hmm. that dramatically uh, improves performance. Mm -hmm. The actual thing that we care about is we, we don't want to cannibalize the request processing threads. Right. We don't want to... So we want to make sure that... Um, we don't use too much memory. It's actually funny because for a long time we used too little memory. Right. So people would put us on a 32 gigabyte machine and we only use two or three gigabytes and people would call us upset. Hey, I have these big machines. Yeah, right. Why more memory. that? What are you doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then we have the other side. Now that we use more memory, people tell us, oh wait, you use too much memory. Yeah, you, you haven't done that before. <laughs> it used to be a small footprint. What went wrong? Yeah. People, so, yeah. all we know for sure is everyone's, somebody's going to complain. Yes. That's yeah. just how it is. That's always yeah. the way it is. We have a question from the audience. I'm wondering when you return data that might be stale, are you just saying there are cute, there are writes that haven't been indexed yet? Is that how you're doing it? Is, is it's the length of the queue? Okay, no, it's actually more complex than that. There is a queue, sort of. And, but what I'm doing is actually a two-stage process. So with Raven, we actually have 
two stores. We have the document store, which is absolutely acid. You always get the latest committed version. And you have the index store, which is basically being updated in the background thread. Because of that, uh, when we uh, when you make a query, we go into the index store and get the current version of the index and query that. Then we compare that. Then, then we check whatever this is the latest version or not. Then what we actually get from the index is not the actual data. It's the document ID. We take the data and go to the document store to get the latest version. So even though we actually tell you that this index, that this result might be still, what you actually get back is the very latest information. The problem here is that there might be changes in the uh, in the query result that hasn't been reflected yet. For example, you just created a new uh, document that hadn't had the chance to go into the index and it won't show up in the query result. As I said before, most of the time, the latency that we are talking about is in the low tens of milliseconds. We're probably talking about one quantum of the CPUs. So we're talking about 60 to 32 milliseconds for most things. And we're actually working on improving that even further. Actually, today, uh, I was talking with Richard and I showed him a, a test that started failing. Mm -hmm. And the reason that it started failing is because we are now too fast. The index, the, the test was assuming that indexes would take some time to process and it effectively rely on a race condition to assert something that you don't really care about. Wow. But now that the indexes are too, so fast, the, the, the test began to fail because it wasn't able to assert on the state in the middle of the operation. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a shame. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a problem that I like to have. Yeah. In uh, SQL Server, I know we have this uh, issue. Well, not an issue, but it's a rule that you probably shouldn't put uh, binary files or big blobs and we have blob storage but sort of from what I remember from SQL if you like embed images and things like that and videos God forbid you know it's, it slows down the queries that don't have anything to do with them but do you have the same kind of issues uh, in RavenDB? Um, not quite because so if you try to embed binary data inside of a JSON document, that would slow things down because obviously the document would become bigger. Right. For the most part, people don't do that because we actually have dedicated binary storage. Okay. So that's called attachment. That's actually separate a separate storage from anything Great. else. Great. So you take your binaries, you store it there, and you have a reference to it in the document? Yes. So okay. that way anything that's big doesn't have and to... And that's something SQL 2012 now does. Mm -hmm. yeah. The file stream? Yeah, the, oh, actually, oh, I can't 20, remember the it. I think it's 2010. Yeah, there's no 2010. No, the, so 28 maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Firestream is not just recent. I think. Yeah. Another question from the audience. Uh, hi. Uh, what you would recommend for enterprise applications who are you know planning to use RavenDB in terms of indexing strategy? Because that's I think the most important thing if you want your RavenDB to be as fast and as efficient for enterprise level. So. What we recommend is an indexing strategy. Uh, for the most part, so, okay, this is a complex uh, question to answer because the answer is it depends. Uh, remember that I told you that I run into a whole lot of problems with clients over and over again? Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm coming to a client, I'm coming from the application side. Reduce the number of queries that you're making optimize this query to be slightly faster by 
not doing a Cartesian product, those sort of things. But I'm nowhere near the level of a DBA that can go and says, okay, you need to put it in a different file group. This need to, the sector size need to be this one or those sort of things. Uh, when I started building RavenDB, I made a decision that I don't want our users to actually have to have to face this complexity. That kind of arcane knowledge. Yes. Yeah. So it's still actually... Uh, uh, applicable because in the end we're running on the same hardware. Sure. So the knowledge of a sector size actually matters and mm -hmm. how the things are behaving on a disk. Yeah. But for the most part, you don't care. Mm -hmm. and certainly as a developer and ops people, you just want to make it work and it runs. So RavenDB, uh, so you start RavenDB, you start putting documents, you start querying that and everything will just work. And people who don't no NoSQL solutions, just don't have any idea how unique that is, mm -hmm. that you can just start making queries and things just work because in most NoSQL solutions, you have to go and do a whole bunch of work up front just to be able to query things. With RevenDB, you're going ahead and querying things. Now, in SQL, you do the same, except that you're never going to go with a SQL database to production without going and doing a costly indexing phase. Mm -hmm. This is where this is the part where you actually go over all of the uh, uh, all of the tables and all of the uh, queries, and you have a DBA that goes and make a lot of judgment calls yep. on how the system is going to behave. With RavenDB, what's actually happening is that the engine itself is able to uh, to analyze the queries that you're making, and based on that, it's able to optimize itself. It's going to create indexes that match the queries that you're doing. The, yeah, the Does that mean that the first time you run one of these queries, it's not indexed, it's going to take a long time? Uh, it's going to take up to 15 seconds. It's going to wait up to 15 seconds, right. and then it's going to give you some results. Yeah. Uh, those results are going to respect the usual promises of RevenDB, which means that it might tell you that, oh, wait, I'm still... But for the I'm, most I'm part, what? I'm stale. This is this still? is stale. Yeah. Stale. Oh, stale. Stale. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, my pronunciation is affected. No, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's me. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so it might tell you that it's stale, but this is something that may may happen everywhere. But at that point, you've already kicked off the indexing, and some minutes later, it's going mm -hmm. to be finished, right? Yeah. Unless again, unless you're talking about. Millions and millions of records, but, you know, that's going to finish in under a minute. Chances are you're doing that in a testing environment anyway. Mm -hmm. So, and anyway, so for example, w the first time that we went live with uh, my blog, you hit you hit the page for the first time. It created the index on the fly, mm -hmm. and you only saw it only had a chance to index about three years of uh, blog posts, right? And only. Yes. So the next the next time that you if you hit a five immediately afterward, it was immediately up to date. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about usually in terms of seconds, even if you create an index from scratch. Does RavenDB ever remove indexes? Yes. Um, if you're not using an index for a while, mm -hmm. it will actually go ahead and delete that. Mm -hmm. Assuming that it created the index automatically. Okay. So if you can you, go make them yourself mm -hmm. and it'll leave them. Yes. But if you let it create them automatically, it'll also delete them. Exactly. Okay. And you have a any something to tweak there to tell it how long to wait? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there is a bunch of configuration parameters mm. uh, that you can decide, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But for the most part, we don't actually worry about, uh, about them that much. Yeah. 
uh, we have a rule that uh, our own internal system go to production with the default configuration. Yeah. And that is because a lot of the things, uh, a lot of things RevNDP are self-optimizing. The moment right. that we have a high load, we're going to switch to higher, higher latency and more throughput in the indexing. Uh, we're going to automatically index uh, based on your queries, those sort of things. Yeah. And just before we move to the next question, just to answer the question, you generally don't need to create indexes unless you want to do MapReduce or you want to do full text search or you want to do some sort of complex computation during the uh, index. Beyond that, you just let RevenDB handle it for you. Nice. So basically, you need to come up first with indexing strategy and then, you know, build your app on top of that. No, you don't have to worry about that. You Worst don't have to actually come up with an indexing strategy. I mean, your concern here is I do need to come up with an indexing strategy. And I think that's yeah. based on your experience with SQL. Yeah, with SQL, I played a little bit with RevenDB from oh. Okay, so you don't need an indexing strategy because it will actually self-optimize itself for you and it will create the indexes for you. Okay. Worst case scenario, you might need to do a bit of a load test on the application before you go live to teach it what sort of uh, queries you're going to do. We have another question. If I have two document template or documents that I'm storing common data between them, for example, two bank accounts and I'm transferring money from one bank account to another, where does the underlying data of that transaction or that, that transfer get stored? Is there a better way of doing it? Is there, do I have to split it up into two pieces and do I have to correlate them later because the auditors come in and they want to make sure that those bank accounts are right, especially if I'm displaying that data milliseconds after I've uh, updated both accounts? So... That's actually an interesting question because you actually do, from business perspective, you actually do have two transactions. One of them is withdrawal and one of them is a deposit. Uh, usually we model that as a document per account per month. So we have account slash one, two, three slash December 2012. And in that document, you're going to have a list of transactions in that month. And in one of those documents, you're going to have a deposit and, it, and it's going to say, okay, from this account with this transaction ID, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to have a matching uh, entry in another document in the uh, withdrawing account to do just that. And if you think about how it works from an accounting perspective, this is actually how it used to work. And that's the most natural thing to do from the domain model, and this is just the way that you do it. Well, guys, we're just about out of time, so I'd like you to give another great big round of applause, and thank you to Ornini. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on .NET Rock! <laughs> Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, 
training developers to work smarter, and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band by the FCC.